Amen. Thank you, Aaron and Tyler. That was wonderful. Really appreciate it. Well, as I mentioned, we're still in Genesis. I know. For those of you who've been gone a few weeks, you're probably like, whoa. I figured we'd be done with this by now, but we got, we got like two months left, so we're getting close. It's been ten months by the end of it, so we've been in here a while. We're getting close, though. We're on the, we're on the final stretch. There's only eight chapters left, nine chapters left, and, uh, and we've got a f- uh, just a, the, the last bit of this story. But it's impactful. It's impactful because Genesis, like I've said from the beginning, these are the fundamentals. It's the fundamentals of what it means to be human what it means to be in a family, humanity, a people. All of that comes from Genesis. And all the issues of Genesis, the promises, and everything that we've talked about, a land, a seed, a blessing, they all come together in Genesis. And the rest of the book, and by the book I don't mean Genesis, the rest of the book, the Bible, is the fulfillment of those promises given in Genesis. It's fundamental. So if you weren't with us over the last couple weeks, like I mentioned, we followed the story, the trajectory of Joseph. And Joseph is a righteous man. And he's a good man. And we've seen his suffering. We talked about what it means to be a righteous sufferer, to actually be condemned for doing the right thing. Right? Joseph does not choose to sin and yet finds himself land landing in prison. And not only that, he's the lowest of the prison because he's a slave. He's a foreigner. He has nothing good going for him, it seems like. And of course, last week, that was two weeks ago, we talked about his suffering. The last week, we talked about God's exalting of him, exalting him to glory, changing his status from the lowest of the low In one chapter, from the lowest of the low, an imprisoned, foreign-born slave to vizier, right? To prime minister over all of Egypt. Literally, with only one exception, the highest official in all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh is higher in regards to to the throne. But even Pharaoh says nothing will happen in the land of Egypt without Joseph's say. Right? Unless Joseph says it, hap- it should happen, it won't happen. And we're left there. But we were left with a little nugget at the end of last week, which is the famine was very severe. Remember, he, Pharaoh had the dreams, and we saw seven years of plenty in which Joseph stored up, and then seven years of famine, and now Joseph's distributing food to Egypt. And it says the famine was severe in Egypt, and even more, the famine was severe in the whole world. Now, why does it say that? Because it's leaving us a tidbit, a reminder. There's a whole world outside of Egypt that could be coming to Joseph, that Joseph is waiting for. And who's out in that world? Joseph's family, the broken family that he left behind. Or rather, I should say that that pushed him out, right? That's what's out there. Joseph even alludes to it. Remember the names of his children, Manasseh. The Lord has made me forget Manasseh in English. He's made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. His father's house is about to come back on the scene here in chapter 42. What he thought he'd forgotten, the Lord had not forgotten. 
there was a reconciliation yet to be had for Joseph and his family. Okay, chapter 42. I call tonight's sermon, Dreams Fulfilled. Dreams Fulfilled. We're going to see the dreams of Joseph come to pass. Now, we've been waiting for this. We've been waiting this since the beginning of, of the Joseph story, since chapter 37. Remember, his story opens up with what? With his dreams, right? The first you see of Joseph is you see the development. Oh, oh, the brothers hate each other. And they hate each other because their mothers hated each other, right? They're, They're sisters. The sisters hated each other. And that rivalry passed on down to the children. And not only that, we see that Joseph is the loved one, the beloved child, the child of Rachel, the beloved wife. And he stands head and shoulders above everyone else in Jacob's eyes. And of course, that just breeds animosity in the family. But we see that tension, and then the first thing that happens, Joseph's like, hey, guys, guess what? I had a dream. I had a dream. And you were all bowing down to me. Your sheaves, we were all, we were all gathering grain, and, and your sheaves, they, they stood up and then bowed to the ground to my sheaf. And then he has a second dream. My star was picked up out of all the stars and and the other 11 stars and the sun and the moon came and they all bowed down to my star. And Jacob even rebukes him, says, will your brothers and your mother and I really come and bow down to you? And he rebukes him. But we've seen as we've walked through these weeks, Joseph the dreamer, his dreams are prophetic. They're words from the Lord. And so, of course, you have the dreams of the, the baker the baker and the chief cupbearer. They both, Joseph interprets them, and they both come to pass. And then Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh's dreams last week. He has his dreams, and they both come to pa- pass. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. But we're still waiting for one set of dreams that have yet to be fulfilled. And those dreams are the ones from the very beginning of the story, Joseph's story. Dreams at this point, he's probably long forgotten. Dreams that had happened 20 years in this man's past. When he was taken, he was 17 years old. He's now a 30-year-old man. It's been 13 years. It's 13 years since we've seen the, 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 kidnapping of him. I I don't know what else to call it. The selling of him into slavery. And 20 years since these dreams. And so here we are. Joseph now stands over all of Egypt and he's probably forgotten. He's forgotten his toil, forgotten his father's house. He's an important official. He has other things going on. And we jump back to Canaan. What's going on in Canaan with the family? Here we go. Verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers For he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. 
So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. So, of course, Jacob, he's not sending Benjamin. And why? Well, because Benjamin is all he has left of Rachel. Rachel, if you remember, earlier in Genesis, she died in childbirth with this child, Benjamin, who she called Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, when she died in childbirth. But Jacob called him Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand, my, my favored son, the one in the position next to me, closest to my heart, right? And so this child is precious because not only has he lost Rachel, who died in childbirth with Benjamin, but also, as far as he knows, Joseph's dead too. Remember, he receives the bloodied tunic, and he sees it, and, and he's grieved. In fact, he says, I will never stop grieving. I will never stop mourning my son. Till I go down to the grave, I will publicly mourn for him. And so, Benjamin is all he has left of his favored wife, of his favored children. So he says, I won't send Benjamin. I won't send my baby, the youngest. But they need grain. They're, they're starving. So he sends them down. The other ten brothers go down, and they reach Egypt. And what happens? It, happenstance. It's just coincidence, isn't it? Now, Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Which makes sense, right? They're still living in their standard ways of life. The nomadic life, the, the life of the Hebrew in the land of Canaan. Just like Joseph would have been had he not been sent to Egypt. But Joseph, what does he look like? He's, first of all, he's probably acculturated, right? He looks Egyptian. Not only is he acculturated, but he's clothed in power, isn't he? He probably has all the royal vestments of the vizier. He he's, looks powerful. He eats only the best food and the, and the best things. And so, of course, he, he looks like a different person. And not only that, he, he's not speaking like Joseph did. He's speaking harshly to them. He's... He's being intent with them. All right, there's an intensity in what Joseph is doing. And so they don't recognize him, but of course Joseph recognizes his brothers. And so what's Joseph going to do? What do you think is the first thing Joseph notices? The first thing he notices, I'm sure, is that his brother Benjamin isn't there. Remember, Jacob sent ten. But not Benjamin. And of course, he didn't go himself. So all that is there is the ten brothers. Now, what was their last meeting? Their last meeting was to throw Joseph in a pit and say, let's kill the dreamer. In fact, 
Let's kill him, be rid of him, and see what becomes of his dreams. See if they can come to pass while he's dead with sand over him in a pit. And of course, Judah, he sh- he's shrewd. He goes, no, 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 no. Let's, let's sell him. <laughs> Make some money at least. Why, why just kill him? Why waste a crisis, right? Let's at least make some money off of him. Let's sell him. That is the last interaction that Joseph has had with this family. Remember that. We think Joseph odd at times when we read this because he does not just come out right and say who he is. To be honest, I think Joseph shows incredible restraint and incredible godliness. And we're going to see that in the passage. Because remember, they upended his whole life. This man, a righteous man, has now spent not only time as a slave, but years, years imprisoned as a slave. Only because God has been at work behind the scenes has he been taken out of what his life had become. So, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. And so, he continues the ruse, the facade. And he says this. says this in verse 9. This is key. Joseph remembered the dream, which he had had about them, and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the naked parts of our land. And that implies the parts that are weak, the parts that are undefended. That's why it's translated that way. Right? He, he confronts them as if they're evildoers, as if they're spies, right? They're coming in to suss out what's going on in the land. But Joseph knows they're not, right? He knows. But what's interesting is what, what spurs this on is that he remembered his dreams. He remembered the dreams he had as a boy, of them bowing down to him. And when he does this, he doesn't instantly go, ha, 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 look, my dreams came true. And I think in part, he's still trying to figure out who these men are. Sure, they're his brothers. Now, they haven't been very brotherly, but they are his brothers, so he knows them, but he doesn't know them. He's been out of their lives for 13 years. He has no idea who they've become. He has no idea what the condition of their hearts are. And he's trying to find out. And again, let me remind you that the two people who he clearly cares for are not there. Neither Benjamin, his full brother, nor his father, Jacob, are there. It is ten murderous brothers who all conspired to kill and or sell him into slavery. So he's trying to figure out the situation. So they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. 
for they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today. And one is no longer alive. I wonder how that struck, struck Joseph, huh? They're still telling the same lies because it's just become a part of their life. It's become the normal for them. Like, who would they admit that to? They obviously have not told their father. They obviously have not told anyone. It's probably a long-held family secret that the ten of them know and no one else does. But it's clearly become a part of their narrative. One of our brothers is dead. He died. And they all know it's not true. They all know what really happened. They stand before a totally, at least to them, totally random foreign official, and they still feel the need to tell this lie. Of course, they're not going to look like honest men if they tell the truth, are they? (laughs) Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this, you will be tested By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested. Whether there is truth in you, but if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now again, Joseph, there's no doubt this is in some sense punitive. He's putting them in prison. But to be fair, Joseph has spent years in prison. At this point, I don't feel particularly bad for the brothers for spending three days in jail. And Joseph probably doesn't either. There is some sense in which Joseph is making sure that they receive some little taste of what they deserve for their evil. But I also wonder, what was Joseph thinking? I'm sure he's just wrestling with himself. Don't you think? He's battling the impulses within himself. I can only imagine, oh, I just, they have done such evil to me. And he remembers the days. (laughs) Remember the days of my imprisonment? Remember the days I was a slave? Remember Potiphar's wife who had me thrown into this prison for nothing? All of that, these guys' fault. It's their fault. I spent years, I've lost years of my life to them. All the time, but you can never, you can never get away from the fact that he's a righteous man. He wants to honor God and how he lives and what he does. He can never get away from the fact that he knows that God lifted him out of that prison to raise him to be the most powerful man in Egypt. So he says this to them. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live. For I fear God, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Now, again, he's not just going to let them go away. He wants 
Joseph is still playing the ruse, but he wants to make sure there's some way that he knows they're going to be back together again. And more than anything, it's clear what he's trying to do. He wants to see his brother. He wants to see his baby brother. He wants to see Benjamin. And so what's going on here is that he says, okay, here's the plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep one of you here. And that will be the collateral. That will be the proof. That'll be the the thing I hold on to to prove that you are are trustworthy, that you can hold to your word. And the rest of you go back, take food for your family. And of course, he's thinking about his father back home. He doesn't want to just send one brother and one bag of grain. He wants to make sure they're provided for, they're taken care of. It's his family. It's his dad. He loves his father. So he lets them all go except for one. So which one's he going to keep? That's a good question. We'll find out. So his brothers, they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Now, I, I actually quoted this verse earlier to you in the series, but I want to mention it while we're here. When you hear the story of the pit, of the throwing in the pit, you don't know what's going on with Joseph. And Joseph is silent in that story. You, you never know how Joseph reacted to it. But Genesis 42, the brothers tell us what Joseph did. And we forget to include this in the story. We don't think about it. They say openly, while we sat down and had a meal, Joseph pleaded with us. He cried out in anguish from the pit. I'm sure Joseph was crying for relief. Release me. Don't do this to me, brothers. How, ca- how, could you do th- how can you do this to our father? Please, please, I'm on my life, I beg you. That's Joseph's reaction. And we miss the hardness of their hearts when we don't think about the fact that Joseph pleaded for his life and his brothers ignored his cries, his his plea for mercy, and sat down and had a meal and then sold him into slavery. The hardness of heart to do that is extreme. And they admit as much here. We know surely now that we are guilty concerning our brother, for we did not listen to him in his distress. We did not listen to his cries. And Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Who is Reuben? Reuben is the firstborn. The firstborn of all of Jacob's children and the firstborn of Leah. It's important to remember. And Reuben, if you remember in the story, is the one who said, let's just put him in this pit. Don't kill him. Don't kill him outright. They were ready to murder him on the spot. He said, no, 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 just, just put him in this pit for now. And it says Reuben's thought. He, he said, well, when we leave, I can come back and save the boy. 
That's what Reuben said. He's the oldest. He's got to be the responsible one, right? He's trying to save Joseph. And of course, Reuben, it, it seems, it must be that Reuben went away or something because Judah comes up with the idea to sell him. And then they sell him. And Reuben comes back and he's like, what happened? And now Reuben's saying, didn't I tell you that? Didn't I tell you not to touch him? And now a reckoning comes. They did not know. However, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them, right? So there's an interpreter who can speak both Hebrew and Egyptian. And so this interpreter is there. So what's, what's the implication? The brothers assume that this royal official only knows Egyptian. He can't speak Hebrew. Why would he know Hebrew? He's the vizier of Egypt. And so that interpreter stands there as, as almost part of the ruse, right? Obviously, there would normally be interpreters for royal officials talking to foreign-born people that they wouldn't understand. But in this case, Joseph understands them perfectly because he knows Hebrew. But the interpreter makes the brothers think that he can't. And so this interpreter between them is, is, is making it so they speak freely because they assume this royal official can't understand. And when Joseph hears what Reuben says... It says he turned away from them and wept. Why? Why weep? Why does he weep? I, I can only imagine it's an amalgam of things. In part, you have, to, you have to think that Joseph weeps over what happened to him. I mean, that's fair, isn't it? I mean, the life that was just stolen from him. It's like, in the text, it's almost like he's never had the chance to even grieve what happened to him. The events seem to happen so fast, even though in reality we know it's years and years. There's never any time where we see Joseph just sit and reflect on what's happened to him. This moment, I think, is the first we see in the text. The grievousness of what had happened to him, what had transpired in his life. And at the same time, I can't help but think he also weeps because he recognizes for the first time that his brothers rec recognized that they were wrong, that what they did was evil. Maybe for the first time he realizes that Reuben wanted to protect him. That his oldest brother the firstborn was, was actually intent on protecting Joseph, taking care of him. And he admits so right here. And he admits so freely of heart because he knows, at least in his mind, he knows that there, there's no indication that anyone can understand what he's saying. He's just speaking freely to his brothers. And Joseph hears that. He turns away and weeps because he's moved. But when Joseph returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and he bound him before their eyes. Who's Simeon? Simeon is the second born. Second born son of Leah. Why does he take Simeon? My guess is he spares Reuben because of what he just heard. It makes sense that Joseph would take the firstborn, right? That's going down the line. He doesn't. He takes Simeon. 
the implication, in my opinion, is just what was just said. He doesn't take Reuben because he realizes Reuben set out to protect him. And so he binds Simeon, the secondborn, the next in line for responsibility. So Simeon is bound, put back in prison. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in a sack. And to give them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money. And behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? What are they implying? That this is a judgment. That this was God's design to judge them for the way they treated Joseph. Because, of course, what do they think? They know how anyone who sees this situation will interpret it, that they stole their money back. And they just don't know what to make of it. It says they literally tremble. What are we going to do? How are we ever going to show our face again before this official? (laughs) How are we ever going to get Simeon back? It looks like we stole some of our money. We're thieves in the eyes of Egypt. So they view it as judgment. And then they came back to their father Jacob in Canaan. They told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, he spoke harshly with us, and he took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, he said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. It was bad enough with one bag of money, but all of them had their money returned. Their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. He writes him off for dead. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. He's lost Joseph as far as he knows. He's dead. And once they see the money, he's like, Simeon's as good as dead. Then most likely they'll kill him outright because they think we stole our money back. But even if they don't, his life's as good as forfeit because we can never go back down there again. If we show our faces, we'll all die.
But Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him, Benjamin, put Benjamin in my care, and I will return him to you. He's saying, just like you've lost two sons, take my two sons. I promise you, I give you an oath. I will bring Benjamin back. Hold my two sons as collateral. I will bring your son back. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. The grave down to the dead in sorrow. That's where our passage ends tonight. The first trip to Egypt. The first sight of the brothers reunited. But I'll tell you what, it doesn't look like it's going good. Reconciliation still looks a far, far distance from what we're reading. Does not look like it's going good. But still, even in this first trip, there's lessons to be learned. There's something to, to glean from it. And I think about what I've talked about as we followed the life of Joseph. We talk so much about the suffering aspect. And last week I told you it's important to remember that God, in the proper time, he exalts his people. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand and he will exalt you at the proper time, 1 Peter 5. What's interesting here is that we're seeing example. We're seeing an example of what Joseph is like after his exaltation. His dreams have come to pass. Not only is he the greatest in all of Egypt, not only has the Lord lifted him out of obscurity, not only has he been exalted over the land, but also his dreams have been fulfilled. All those dreams we were waiting for so long ago, the brothers coming and bowing down to him, it happened in this chapter. Even my dreams from when I was a boy have been fulfilled. What's the propensity when everything's going right, when everything's going your way, everything's coming up aces, even my dreams from, when, from childhood are being fulfilled. Like, like the text says, everything Joseph touches succeeds. It flourishes. Everything he touches turns to gold. What's the human propensity? I did. I did this. Look at what I accomplished. Look at what I earned. Look at what I did. It's pride. We turn inward on ourselves. We think, look at where I am now. Look at how much I've, I've, I've done. Look at how much I've become. Look at how much I've accomplished. Is Joseph like that? I would submit to you that he is not. And the reason I say that is because I look at the way Joseph treats his brothers. Sometimes we, we get mixed up because we see the speaking harshly. That's all part of the ruse. We have to look at the text 
We really have to look beyond the text to see what Joseph could have done, not just what he did, but what he could have done. Joseph is the most powerful person in the most powerful civilization in history at that time, Egypt, the greatest civilization that exists at that time, in this time period, the empire of that age. Joseph, if he wanted to, he could have killed them all right then. Guards, kill these men. He even even came up with the excuse to. They're spies. They're seeking out the undefended part of our lands. Kill them. He would have had every right to. No one was outside his power and his purview in Egypt. And even like Internally, we've we read the story. We recognize how much evil they've done to him. You almost could say, man, you know what? They probably deserve it. They would probably deserve it at this point. I mean, the hell they unleashed on Joseph is just heinous. And Joseph is now finally in a position to get even. In fact, in a position to get, go beyond getting even. His dreams, every one of them fulfilled. And yet he doesn't forget. He doesn't forget the kindness of the Lord to him. Because he knows that when he was in prison, It was God's kindness that lifted him out of obscurity, that exalted him to glory. And it would have been easy and within his power and within his right, and some would say even deservedly so for his brothers to reap punishment for what they sowed. Even if he didn't kill them. You know what? Just put them in prison. Let's see how they like prison for three years. Let's see how they like it for, let's like, let's put, you know what? I'm going to sell them into slavery. Let's see how they like being slaves. He could have done any number of things to his brothers, but he didn't. Because Joseph knew there was another purpose. And he was not exalted to glory to exact vengeance on his brothers for what they did to him. And the brothers don't know it yet because they don't even know it's Joseph. But once they find out it's Joseph, what's their response then? They're even more afraid. When it was just a random Egyptian official, it's like, well, that's scary enough. He's powerful. Oh, that's the brother we tried to murder. They're terrified beyond belief. But even then, what's Joseph's conclusion about the situation? Joseph's conclusion is what you intended for evil, God intended for good. See, Joseph was not swayed by the fact that his dreams had been fulfilled. He was not prideful. He did not forget that God was involved, that he had done it all himself, and it was God who who brought him there. He didn't forget any of that. He knew it was God. And he recognized that even the evil intentions of the heart of men 
could be used by God for good purposes. Even his brother's heinous treatment of him was actually the hand of God. To save many lives is what it says in Genesis. Even now, when the opportunity presents themselves to exact vengeance, he doesn't forget. He doesn't forget that it was God who showed kindness to him and took him out of the darkness of his soul. And that he was bound, bound to the fact that he would not offer the same to it, that he would not offer evil in return for that kindness from God. He would not offer his brothers the same that they offered him. That there was a better way, a more righteous way. And as we followed this story of suffering and exaltation, and at every point I've tried to, 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 to tell you, when you hit those situations, how should you, how should you respond? How should we respond? If you're suffering, you should respond like this. If you're exalted, you should respond like this. And now I have to tell you, don't forget. When you're exalted, when things are going right, when the Lord lifts you out of suffering, when he ex exalts you to glory, when everything's going good, don't forget it's your responsibility to not offer what the world has offered you. Because you'll be tempted You'll be tempted to return evil for evil. One of my favorite verses in the, books, in the book of Romans is this. Do not return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Why? Why do that? Why? Why would you not just, uh, it's, it's so much easier. It really is. I'm not just saying this as a, as a joke. It really is so much easier to just return evil for evil. It's, a, it's the easier path. Why would you overcome evil with good? Why? Because it's the godly way. God could have done it a different way. You know, you always think about this. Like, why didn't God just take out Satan before any of this happened? He could have, right? It's possible. He certainly has the power to do it. Because God plays the long game. Evil for evil, all it does is make you what you hate. You respond to evil with evil, you become evil. God played the long game. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you it's the nice path, it's the fun path, it's the easy path, because it's the exact opposite. It's the costly path, it's the hard path, it's the one that is the sacrificial path. It cost God everything to overcome evil with good. It cost him his son. It cost Jesus his life. It's the long game approach. It doesn't always feel like it's paying dividends in the short term. It doesn't feel like you're accomplishing something always. It sometimes feels like, what is the return on this investment? 
the only way. The only way to truly change hearts is to overcome evil with good. And when I look at Joseph in this story, I see a man committed to the hard path, committed to the godly path. When everything is there and the chance is ripe to pay back evil for evil, he doesn't do it. Because he knows, he knows that God was at work. He knows that what man intended for evil, God intended for good. He knows that it was the kindness of the Lord that led him out of the pit, out of obscurity, out of his suffering. And he knows that the godly way is to overcome evil with good. It's the only way. It's the only way to change the hearts of men. Evil for evil, it works. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you it doesn't work. It can work. You can overpower evil by using great evil. And you'll accomplish nothing. No lives will be changed. For the better, anyway. <laughs> no lives will be changed. No hearts will be changed. No minds will be captured. All you've proven is you're just like the people you hate. The Christian way is to overcome evil with good like Paul tells us. And we've got to commit to that. We've got to commit to the costly path, the sacrificial path, when we're not there. Because I'll tell you, when the, when the moment comes and you're in that situation like Joseph with the power to do great evil that these evildoers deserve, the temptation's too great. You've got to prepare your heart to do good now, all the time. Whatever situation comes your way, even the small things, because that is what determines your character for the Joseph moments. There's prayer for you as you would all overcome evil, the evil you come into contact with every day, whatever day it is. Whatever evil you come into contact, you'd work at overcoming it with good. That's what it means to be like Jesus. I'm going to have Tyler uh, lead us in some prayer as we end, but before that, it was just timely that Aaron played kindness tonight. Uh, because that message is so true. <laughs> is so pertinent to us. And I think especially in this age, in this age that's become so politicized, so polarized, so uh, normal to speak evil and to do evil and to talk evil about people. Uh, we're called to something different. We're called to something better. I'm not saying we can't have the discussions, the debates about whatever. I'm not saying anything about any one topic. I'm saying about whatever. But the, the, the impulse, the impulse to denigrate and degrade others, to dehumanize, that's not of God. That's, that's Satan's way. That's overcoming evil with evil. 
You've got to be ready to overcome evil with good. Pay back kindness for persecution. So I'm going to have Aaron come up. If you would just lead us in that song one more time. Uh, and we just meditate on that. Meditate on what God has offered you. It's in reflecting in what it's in reflecting on what God has offered you that we can see the path to offer the same to someone else. Just like the New Testament, the parable, right? The parable where the man comes and he's forgiven by the Lord. The king forgives him of all his great debt and of course he goes out and and someone else owes him just a tiny bit and what's he do? He strangles him. He says, pay me back. Because he has no connection between the debt that was forgiven him that was immense and the small, insignificant debt that was owed him. And he can't see that what the Lord did for him, he should extend to someone else. What the king was willing to do is so much greater than any possible grievance he could have had against anyone. And he couldn't see it. And the warning is in that parable. You don't like it, but it's there. Because Jesus reminds us, what's the king do? He says, throw that man in the dungeon until he's paid me back every penny because I've seen the way he treated the people who owed him something. And I forgave him this great debt, and he went out, and he made a mockery of my forgiveness. And Jesus ends that parable by saying, he ends the parable by saying, so it is with my Father in heaven. Forgiveness is not, it's not a negotiable in the Christian faith. It's a requirement. And our forgiveness as Christians is predicated on the fact that we recognize how much we've been forgiven. We've got to offer what we've been offered. What we've been offered is beyond measure. So too, we need to offer it to others. And let's live that out. Let's live out overcoming evil with good, overcoming evil with kindness. Because that's the Jesus way. Aaron, will you lead us in this song one more time? And then Tyler, will you, you just can come up and, and close us out in prayer, however you want.